Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Awanate Kobina, the newly appointed CEO of the Bedrock Manufacturing Company, the manufacturing and design group that is home to global brands you've probably heard of, like Shinola and Filson. In addition to being CEO, Awanate has served as a member of the company's board since April of last year and is also responsible for running investments and philanthropic activities for the company's largest investor, the Bedrock Group. Here's another fact about Awanate. He's only 41, and his journey from staffer to CEO is one for the record books. I got to know Awanate when we worked together in the White House Office of Legislative Affairs, but that was not his only role. Over the course of six years, he worked in the Office of Management and Budget, the Office of Legislative Affairs, and he concluded his time in the Office of the Chief of Staff as a Special Assistant and Policy Advisor. And get this, it all started when he was an intern at the White House. When he left the White House in 2015, Awanate moved to Detroit and entered the world of sports. There, he served as Vice President of Public and Business Affairs for Palace Sports and Entertainment, home of the Detroit Pistons, and Executive Director of the Detroit Pistons Foundation. I am so pleased to be able to talk with Awanate today about his path and his current role. As you'll hear, his connection to Detroit and its revitalization is deep. It's part of his day job, of course, and it's also part of his civic involvement. In addition to the roles he plays at Bedrock, he is also chairman of the executive committee of the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. I hope you enjoy today's conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. Awanate and I sat down together on Friday, January 28th. Awanate Kobina, welcome to Staffer. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. It is fantastic to see you again. I'm so appreciative uh, of your making the time. You know, you may know that I, I like to find out how people like you who have gone on to do amazing things started as staffers and how they sort of met public policy and 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 political engagement as something that they wanted to do with their lives. So I typically start at the beginning and ask a bit about where they grew up and what their family was like. So can you tell us about that? Sure. Happy to. Uh, so my my I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C., the Washington, D.C. area. I spent uh, the majority of my time uh, near the capital, actually, 4th and D, Northeast. Um, but I spent some time in Alexandria and and, uh, and Bethesda as well. Uh, I went to St. Anselm's, uh, which is a school near Catholic University for middle school and high school, and really enjoyed being in D.C. and having no affiliation with politics for the overwhelming majority of my life. Uh, but when I went to law school, I started to think seriously about what I wanted to do with my career for the first time. I, I, I really had very few of those thoughts, unlike many of the driven people that we worked with in undergrad. I, I was a political science major, but mostly because I thought I could uh, read and write papers pretty well, and, and it came pretty easily to me. And I worked at a law firm after school, a large um large, uh, you know, top 10 law firm from New York that had a DC office doing international trade and, and litigation. And one day I, I walked into a colleague's office and, I, you know, she was, she was crying. And I, you know, I started to walk out. She said, no, no, come in. And I, um, so I sat there and I could see she was staring at a TV and I thought, you know, is there, a war that is breaking out that I didn't know about. Did some, you know, did something happen? And I turn around and she's she's watching Wheel of Fortune. So I I asked my colleague, uh, you know, what's what's going on? And she said, I, I know I know the guy that's winning Wheel of Fortune tonight. And I said, then then why are you crying? And she said, because he looks so happy and I'm I'm so not. Mm. And. I, you know, I said, you know, I'm so sorry. You know, we talked for a few more minutes. And she, and her punchline was don't go to law school um, after wow. that experience at the law firm. And I walked out of there and I was thinking about it for a couple of weeks. And I decided to still go to law school. I went to Howard in, in Washington, D.C., but to not, well, my conclusion was that I'm not going to a law firm, but the, the steps to get there were how do I figure out how to make my education and my experiences work for me. And that was really the first time that I had, I put a lot of thought into that. 
And so you asked about my 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 steps to to political staffer life. I I realized that when I woke up every day, I, I did the same. I did the same three things. I'd wake up, I get a coffee, I get the paper, I'd read the paper in the order of sports, politics, which was easy because it's the Washington Post is on the front page, and then business, and then I you know I'd get on the subway, I get on the metro and go to work, and so having those those issues grounding me. I've been reading the Washington Post in seventh grade, you know, on my way to school. I, I realized like those are probably the things that I like if I'm willing to do them every day with no one paying me. And so I tried to figure out how do I can get into one of those three careers and, and ended up getting in all three of them eventually. That is incredible uh, because, you know, I, I've heard the advice, you know, a lot of adults when they're talking to young people who are trying to figure out their lives, they say, well, what are you passionate about? And young people sort of hear that. And sometimes they just think like, I'm not passionate about anything. And a different approach that I've heard advised is be attentive to what you're interested in. Yes. And there you are, right, reading yeah. politics, sports and business. And now your life has taken you into all three. So yeah. so let me, uh, you know, ask the next question. You got to the White House through an internship. Correct. I happen to know, and anybody who is familiar with White House internships knows that that is, you know, trying to get to the eye of a needle. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a real, uh, you know, super competitive process. Um, but you made it. So congratulations. Thank you. And where, where were you assigned? And then tell me about, like, the immediate next steps. So, I, you know, it's funny. When, when you apply for the internship, I, I think you look at it as a couple of things. One, this is going to be a great experience for me. I don't really know what to expect, but th this is going to be a great experience professionally and, and personally. And when people think of the internships, you know, they think of, um, you know, the chief of staff's office, their National Economic Council, all, all of these, these offices that we hear about on a day-to-day -day basis. And I actually, during the course of my internship, I, uh, or internship interview process, I interviewed for the Office of Legislative Affairs uh, with a, a young gentleman who we will not name, but whose initials are, are YA um, <laughs> at, at that point in, in 2009. And I, I, didn't get the, I didn't get the internship in that office. I got the internship in the Office of Presidential Correspondence. And so I, after looking up what the Office of Presidential Correspondence does, I was still so excited to be in the White House internship program that I emailed the, the person from the office at, that uh, had reached out to me, a guy named uh, Jeff Stevens at the time, who was the deputy director. I, I mentioned these names partly because they're, they're names you know and, and partly because they would play a, a large part in, in uh, my, my larger White House story. And I said, hey, Jeff, I, I don't know what the, the rules are, but I'd love to start early. This was an internship that was starting in January of 2010. And we were supposed to start on January 20th or something along those lines. And I think his response was, we don't, we don't do that. <laughs> the, you know, the internship program starts when the internship program starts. But I got an email about a week before uh, Christmas and it said, if you're still willing to come early, we'll, we'll take you. I love it. And so I, I came in on my first day and I, I went to the EEOB and got my internship badge. I was the only one there at that time. And then I went to the, the office and I just started going in. And it was me and the 50 staffers that were in presidential correspondence for the first three weeks. So by the time that all the other interns had gotten there, uh, and I, hopefully I'm not ruining a secret that, <laughs> that, that uh, I shouldn't tell, but it's been a decade, so I think that's okay, <laughs> decade plus. Um, I, I, knew all, I knew all the staffers, right? I knew the processes. They had me teach the other interns. And it, it worked out really well such that about three weeks after everyone else had started, six weeks after I did, I got a call in the Jeff's office and he said, I don't know what's going on, but um, you got you to gotta head to EOB to something, second floor EOB. And I remember the day because everyone else was leaving because it was, it was uh, Snowmageddon. So February of 2010, February, mm -hmm. February 15th, maybe 2010. And they let everyone go. Like DC was closing. Everyone was leaving the White House. 
And uh, I, my friends and my fellow interns are like, hey, let's, let's go grab a beer. It's, work's done. Hasn't started, you know, it's barely started snowing. And so I said, no, I got a meeting. And they're all, they're looking at me like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? He showed up early. He's staying late. What is this guy's secret? Right. Like the, the, the world's about to end. There's something called Snowmageddon, sir. Like get out of the office. So I, I go to the EEOB and I, I sit in the office and a, a guy walks in um, and uh, a guy named Rob Neighbors at the time. And he said, hey, I'm looking for an intern. And they sent me you. Why did they send me you? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Rob question. Very Rob question. And I, I said, listen, Rob, like, you know, I think maybe they sent me because I have a law degree or because I'm a hard worker. I like to think I'm pretty smart. And he said, okay, well, you're pretty smart. Do, do you want the hard interview or the easy interview? And I said, I want the easy interview. And he said, <laughs> great. So we, we just chatted for an hour. And at the end, you, you know Rob pretty well um, or very well. He, he said, all right, great. Um, he, uh, he, here's what I need you to do next. And then I walked out of there holding a piece of paper with an assignment and not knowing if I had gotten the job or not. But I ended up working with Rob for kind of most of the next uh, five years. That's right. I um, So as I understand, your path took you um, through OMB and where Rob was at the time. He, yep. he eventually became the acting deputy director, and you were working very closely with him there. Correct. And then President Obama asked Rob to be the assistant to the president for legislative affairs, then that's how you made it back to your original, the, the office that you wanted to be in. Uh, you were the chief of staff there. Um, that's how you and I got to know one yeah. another. Very well. Having, uh, <laughs> very well. Um, let me just ask you about Rob, who, by the way, is a is a staffer podcast Hall of Famer. He was nominated for the Hall of Fame by Mona Sutphin, a previous guest. Um, so tell me about working with him and some of the other folks at the White House, because he I mean, he is uh, exemplary in every way. He's also illustrative of a lot of the characteristics that people you know, have at the White House. So can you talk to me about impressions that he he made on you and, and perhaps others around him that you still draw on today? Oh, definitely. I, I think, you know, and, and Mona as well. Right. Um, some of the people many of the people that I had the opportunity to come into contact with during my time in the White House are, to this day, some of the people who I still draw on lessons from, um, both directly and indirectly, because I would not be the professional in business that I am without, without them, yourself included, um, John Samuels included, many, many people that I think you and I both count as friends and, and former colleagues. When I first met Rob um, in that office that day um, and, you know, worked with him for most of the next almost six years, I, 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 learned, I learned humility from him. He, he was never someone that was about him. He had a strong sense of, of right and wrong and would, uh, and would always make sure that I and he followed that. Um, he really cared about the work that we were doing. He, he dug himself into it. And I don't think anyone, at least at that point, uh, that was in the White House knew as much about the federal appropriations process as Rob did and how to get uh, policy enacted through the appropriations process, how to move money around, um, and, and the, pers the, the personalities that were affected by uh, the appropriations process, if, if, if you understand what I'm saying, and I know you do. And so he really taught me how to, you know, be, be myself, because he certainly was, right, in a lot of ways. Um, but he also was about the, about the job, about the commitment to the country, about President Obama. And I've tried to take that into every job since. I'm, I'm not there looking at the next job. I know that if I do the right thing and am uh, loyal, speak up when I don't agree, um, but also really, really do a good job and work hard, that I'll, that I'll make it there. Um, and thus far, it's, it's worked out. You know, I want to I uh, 
come back to that in a minute about some of those things that you're applying in your current role as CEO. Um, but I do have to ask you about the job that came between the White House and uh, and Bedrock. Um, you left the White House in 2015, and you know you landed what has to be described as the really cool job. Uh, you moved from Washington to Detroit, and you worked for the the Detroit Pistons. You had a number of roles there, eventually becoming vice president of public and business affairs at Palace Sports and Entertainment and executive director of the Detroit Pistons Foundation. So every listener right now is begging to know, what was your role there and how did you get there? <laughs> so the, the the story of my time in, in the Pistons and, and to a larger extent, my time in Detroit started about two years before I, I left D.C. and left the White House. Oh. I, much like my, my time pre-law school, I needed to figure out what am I going to do, right? It's January of 2014. I realized at some point the, the admin, th- that administration was going to come to an end. I was pretty sure, given my interest in sports, politics, which I was doing at the time in business, that I, I wanted a, another chapter in my, in my career outside of, outside of politics. And so I, I did what I think most people would do uh, in that situation. I, I called Mona Sutphin. <laughs> <laughs> her phone's going to light up now. Her phone's going to light up. <laughs> and I, I took the train up to New York, and, and Mona was very kind to get, to get lunch with me. And Mona at the time was at an investment bank doing policy and, you know, had was a a very good job by any measure. And she basically said something to me that really I didn't understand at the time, but had a great effect on me ultimately getting my job in, in D.C., which is business people don't really understand politics. They think they do, but they but they don't. So rewind, you know, so fast forward, sorry. I, I sit down and I, I did something similar to, to what I did with my interests pre-law school. I, I sat down and I wrote, I, wrote a, I wrote a bunch of lists, right? One list, list was what industries are you interested in? Uh, second list was what do you want to do at those, at, what can you do at those jobs? What will someone pay you to do? Uh, a third was who are good people to talk to? you know, outside of, outside of Mona and, at the, you know, and people that we're working with because we're still working with them. And where do you want to go, right? I just had, I had uh, a free thought exercise with myself over the course of nights and weekends for months. And I, I came to a point where, you know, I, I really think that sports or business is right for me still. Here are opportunities that I think I want to go. I matched up the 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 teams, oh, sorry, the industries with the companies and the locations really structured it because if not for that structure, I would have been lost. And when I get calls now from former staffers or current staffers asking, I'm not sure that I, I want to do politics. How do I get to business? Or or even broadly, I've gotten calls uh, over the past uh, year, like how do I take a next step, even if it is in politics? My answer is, I think you need to organize your thoughts, one. Two, and you know this, Jim, the, the magic job rarely just comes and, sit and lays down in your lap, right? There's That's some right. work, whether it's substantive or relationship-based, that you need to do to get there and that I had to do to get there. And so I, I took that list and started doing meetings. I, w- I, would, I made a goal of meeting with one person a and or reaching out to one person a week and uh, started talking to them. And, and luckily for me, at, in law school, I'd worked in one of those industries before. I worked at the National Football League's headquarters. And I had some oh, okay. interviews there for some jobs. And I, I thought, you know, this is in New York, a place that's on my list. And this is in sports, an industry that's on my list. And the job was in their, uh, their media department, which was an interest of mine helping negotiate deals. And I said, great, let me, you know, I interviewed for that job and, and um, a person that I didn't know there, separate from the group that I knew there for, for my time interning there 10 years before, said, let's go to lunch. 
and and we go to lunch and he said, you know, you you might get this job. And I'm like, great. And he's like, do you really want to do this job? And I said, I, I think so. <laughs> and he said, tell me about yourself. <laughs> he said, tell me about your life. Tell me about your career. Um, you know, I, I don't normally do this, but we, we had a couple beers at lunch, Jim. I'm going to admit that to you for the first time on the Stafford podcast. <laughs> it was like a three-hour lunch. Exactly. Breaking news. Breaking news. Thank you. It's like a three-hour lunch in New York. <laughs> and he writes down five people and he says, I'm going to connect you with these five people. And one of the five was a former television executive for CBS. And I called this woman named Nancy and I said, hey, uh, you know, uh, Jordan set us up, love the chat. So we start chatting and she stops me after a few minutes. She says, why are we talking about you being in the media business when you really want to work in sports? It's obvious. And I said, you know, I, I, I'm interviewing for jobs. So I want to, I really, I've thought a lot about what I want to do. And I, I think I really know how I could be helpful. And I explained some of the things that I, I thought I could do, you know, negotiations and strategy and things that I, you know, people management and project management. I explained all this. And she said, if you want to work in sports, you should call my husband. He's going to take over the Detroit Pistons tomorrow as the lead executive for the owner. So, so I, I called, I called him and we ended up having a great meeting and I ended up getting that, that job. So I get the job offer and I'm sitting, I'm sitting at home and I realize I know no one in Detroit. I knew zero people. <laughs> and so I started calling friends. I started calling the Jim Papas of the world and the John Samuels. Hey, um, we're friends, right? Yeah, of course. You know, I, I like you. Great. Do you know anyone that lives in Detroit or is from Detroit or from Michigan or went to University of Michigan or Michigan State? And I got this list of names and I started reaching out to those people. And, you know, ironically enough, one of them is, is now my, my current boss um, five, six years later. But uh, that's how I ended up with, with the Pistons. Uh, well, that whole process is so instructive and really good insight to you because it does show just how methodical you can be in your thinking, how structured you can be, how you put in the time. Right. Because deep thinking only happens with time. Right. The smartest people in the world, if you give them an hour, they'll give you an hour's worth right. of smart thoughts. But if you give them you know, two months to think on something, they're going to right have better, deeper, more connected thinking. Um, and secondly, the making of the phone call, a lot of people find yes. very hard. But you um, and, and you. So let me ask, do you find that hard um, and do you do it anyway or is that something that comes easy? I find you? it hard and I do it anyway. I think um, I've been lucky in a the jobs that I've had, but b the people that I've I've met. I've met people that whether or not they care about me or not, I think that they're somewhere between indifferent about me and like me. Right. So if I call, they'll generally pick it up, and so I, I've I've really taken uh, forced myself to take the initiative instead of sending an email or um, or a text. You know, a lot of times I'll just say, hey, I'll pick up the phone and just call. If I don't know the person, I will try to find someone to call for me and, and give me a warm handoff so I'm not cold calling. Because I know that's not that's not my strength, right? I, I was not one of those uh, Senate interns that got their job by going to drop off their resumes at the, at the senator or congressman's office. And I know people that did that. And they did it very successfully. That's just not me. And, and part of me realizing that about myself has helped me hone how I'm going to operate in the world writ large. So let's talk about your role now. Um, as of last year, uh, you have been the CEO of the Bedrock Manufacturing Company and the Bedrock Group, best known perhaps for one of the brands that it owns, Shinola. I'm wearing a Shinola watch today. It's not just a prop. I didn't just buy it for this episode. Thank you for your support. Um, I, I, love, I love my bag as well. Um, and the company is 10 years old, uh, Shinola, that is. It's extremely well-known. Uh, it is known for, you know, it being sort of rooted in Detroit. Um, so tell me about your, you know, the the role that you're playing today as CEO. What exactly, you know, occupies your time day in and day out? It's, it's interesting. When you come into a company that, I, I was familiar with as well. I have I have a watch. I'm wearing my watch now, and probably unsurprisingly, 
um, you, you come in into an already existing ecosystem and culture. And luckily for me, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, the, the founder of Shinola, uh, Tom Kartsotis, has become a friend over the last six years. He was one of the first people I, that I met in, in Detroit. He and I got lunch or drinks or dinner two or three times a year for, for the last five or six years, which is how we got to know each other. And we sure, we talked about my business at the Pistons and the arena we were helping to build and moving the team from the suburbs to the city. We talked about his starting a, a, a business, Shinola, in the city of Detroit when he, he's not from here, he's from Texas. But we also got to talk about family and values and underlying motivations. And what I didn't realize the first time that I bought a, a Shinola watch and, and I now have multiple in the Shinola bag or Shinola bags is that he, he, he arisen, his original idea was he saw that Detroit was going through a hard time and wanted to create jobs, right? Creating jobs in hard hit, hit areas of, of America. And knowing that about him and then seeing how the brand had proliferated many aspects of American life. And, you know, they're not, they're not Coca-Cola. It's not a household name yet, but it, you know, you're wearing one, it's, it's getting there. Right. And so sure. being able to understand the founders values and, and goals, and then coming in as, as CEO first of, of really his family office, the lead investor, and then of the company itself has allowed me to take what is our shared vision for the company and take what are very similar uh, belief systems and put my own spin on it, right? And one of the things that we agreed on, and it's probably no surprise given my time at the Pistons, was we believe in Detroit's ability. Stop, full stop, right? We believe in, in Detroit as a city. We believe that Detroit is where things are made. We believe that, and no pun intended, that Detroit is in a lot of ways the engine of America. And we wanted to make sure that that vision was, was broadcast throughout, throughout the country. And so as we're doing that, as we're deepening our ties in Detroit, which was not dissimilar from what he had to do 10 years ago when he first came into town from, from Dallas after founding another successful business 20 years ago, which was also not dissimilar from what I had to do uh, when I was with the Pistons and the team was 35 miles out in the suburbs. And we came to the city and there were, there were accusations of, of white flight by the team in 1978 when they left. We really have to start by building connections to the people in the city and make sure that we understand what their concerns are, that we understand what their needs are, and that we go from there as far as integrating those with our company's values and showing respect to the culture and the people that were here before us. Only then can we go and and broadcast Shinola Detroit to the world, Right. The, the Pistons are, are lucky in that they, they are able, uh, because of their affiliation with the NBA and franchise rules, to have Detroit on their chest, in, in, you know, no matter where their actual headquarters is. And they're in Detroit now, and they're firmly rooted here. Um, businesses move, right? And businesses are somewhat temporal, and not all businesses are connected to their community. And this business and other businesses that we own are purposefully connected to the locations that they're in, and we're, we're proud to be in Detroit. Well, I could see your, your background, both at the Pistons and in politics, being so useful to you at a company like Bedrock, Shinola, that, um, that draws upon your ability to articulate and help others appreciate the real underlying value. Because that, of the idea, Right. Like the company makes stuff, but you didn't talk about watches. You didn't talk about leather goods. Right. In in, in describing that value. Right? right. It's about the resurgence of the city and getting people to believe that the company and the community can both be engaged in the same project with a purpose. Exactly. I, I totally agree with that. It, it, it's, it really is not all that different from our time in politics. Like, what were we, 
what did we produce during the Obama era? Why were people so interested in it, right? You know, you look at hope or change or the belief that you can be anyone in America, right? Um, the fact that everyone can have health care. Some of those things are tangible, right? That health care is very real to a lot of people that did not have it before, tens of millions. Um, but the the belief in in people was something that I had and why I applied to that internship. I'm sure it's why you applied to that job. And if it's just going to be about the watch or the bag or the dollar, the, those things can motivate for a short period of time, but they're not going to motivate for the, the, long, the long haul. And we want to make sure that people understand that we're, we're making things and that we're delivering jobs and that we're, we're helping um, we're helping as one of the many stakeholders in D Detroit, uh, we're, we're helping create what is the fabric of the community, right? And we haven't been here for 100 years. We've been here for 10. And hopefully we'll be here for 100 more. But every day we need to go in and, and develop those relationships to be able to do that. Yep. Well, let me ask you something about being CEO that may also have a corollary in politics. I, you know, I remember the president saying at some point, you know, the only things that land on my desk are the hardest problems to solve, right? And they're like 51, 49 decisions. If they were easy, somebody else would have solved them. Well, you're at the top of, you know, the, the corporate pyramid. One of the problems I would guess um, is that the company has to navigate is just the, the you know, being a manufacturer in America isn't easy. Um Right. It, it's been hard for decades now. And, you know, can you talk to me a bit about how the company is navigating those challenges, especially when you've got, you know, presumably parts coming from all over the world um, and they, you know, what what can you expect from others in business and what do you think the public should expect of manufacturers in America? It, it's it, it it's 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 difficult, right? As a manufacturer that makes our, our our lead product, the product that you and I are both wearing that most people know is, is watches, right? And the, the best watchmakers um, around the world are, are Swiss, right? And so many of our parts are from Switzerland, but we bring them to Detroit, we, man, we assemble them here, we manufacture them here, and then we sell them to the world. Um, same with our clocks, right? We, we get clock parts from all over the country. We bring them here. And what we've tried to do since the beginning is to be as American as possible, right? We're, we can't, uh, just by the nature of our, our businesses and the products that we make, source every single part for every single product in America. But when we can, we do, either because it's available or and the quality is right and the price is right. And, you know, COVID with supply chain disruptions and inflation and manufacturing challenges around the world, you know them, all of the macro issues that almost every industry, if not every industry is facing today, um, has caused some challenges. But we, we are dedicated to being as American as possible and, at, and, and manufacturing as much in America as possible. And it's not just uh, what we're doing in Detroit, frankly. Um, if you look at our, our, our leather goods are sourced from American manufacturers, uh, we had a, a, uh, a, a fun item. We like to mix in some humor with our, uh, with the, with the seriousness of business. We had a limited edition toboggan that was, uh, <laughs> for the holiday season that was created in, and, uh, and built in Wisconsin. So we're, we're, our sourcing team, our operations team are constantly looking at manufacturers around the country thinking, is there something that we do overseas that we could bring back? Is there something that we do here that we can do better? And that's why the products have ended up uh, being as good as they are, because we are constantly looking at that. And we know that people expect quality when they see the Shinola name. And, and largely, they expect quality when they hear, when they hear Detroit. And so, you know, as you all are 
looking over the horizon and planning new things? Like, what should we expect as consumers? You know, what's new coming for the company? Yeah, ex- expect the unexpected. <laughs> I, I, you know, when <laughs> I would not have expected a toboggan. You would not so. have expected a toboggan. <laughs> when, when, when I first talked to Tom about taking this role, I said, "Where do you see the business heading?" Because I have a view, and and I want to make sure it lines up with yours. And he says, "You're the consumer. What's your view?" And I said, I, I really think we need to have keep with quality products. We need to be about our people, our employees, because there's 500 of them now, up from zero 10 years ago, right, before we started. And they are also consumers, and their families are consumers, and they're talking about the brand. So we have to do right by them. We have to do right by our customers, and we have to do right by the places that we're either manufacturing or sourcing or have retail stores, right? So, so that's a lot. But when, when people see us outwardly, what are they going to know us for? And I think it's, it's really people accessories and home accessories at this point, right? So we have watches. Uh, we have bags, things that you carry around. We have jewelry. Um, and then we have clocks. Uh, and we have our new collection with Crate and Barrel that we released last year. So we have ho- you know, hotel uh, beds and furniture, Right, and then we have what what I hope one day you will come visit, which is the Shinola Hotel in in Detroit. And we, and frankly, we we hope to have more of them in the future. But it's really about making you comfortable, and that we've narrowed that down to to essentially people accessories and and home accessories. And maybe one day we we expand our pet line, uh, but the majority of our business is in is in those in those two areas. Oh, that's really cool. Um, I want to return to something uh, that you you mentioned earlier. You said and it w- something I agree with, which is you know a lot of people in business don't really understand politics, which is normal. They've spent their lives in business, right? They know a lot about business, and they don't spend all their time like you know neck deep in politics like we did for a portion of our careers. And the opposite is true, right? People in politics haven't been neck deep, neck deep in business. So what do you think each side uh, could benefit from learning about the other? So if I had to narrow it down, I would say it's twofold. Um, one is the value of relationships, right? And I know that business people know how to network and, and they, they do it very well and negotiate and people in politics know how to network and they do negotiations. But the negotiations in politics are a little different than business, partly because, at least at the federal level and at the state level too, I guess, you know that you are coming back to that person for something again in the future, right? Yep. Every Congress, there's, there's some turnover, but the Congress is the same for two years. For, for two years, you're coming back to that same chairman or ranking member or cabinet secretary for something else. And so you, it, you can't, or my, my, um, my, my lesson from that is you can win a negotiation, but you can't make the other person feel bad about it. Right? So when I take that to business, it's, is this a win, win, win for everybody at the least? Is this a win? And my, uh, my negotiating partner or my, you know, I hate to call them adversaries, but the person that's across the table from me, are, are they winning as well? Or at least do they feel like they haven't lost, right? Because if they feel like they lost, A, they might get fired and not be there again. Or B, they're going to wait and you never know when it's going to be to ex- extract their pound of flesh, right? right? So I think when people hear, oh, you've been involved in um, X or Y negotiations, oh, you must be some kind of killer. And like, I really think that I try to find the middle ground most times of where is it that my partner can win and we can win as well. And so that's, that's one lesson. Um, the second part is actually uh, a little more, it, it, it delves into substance and policy. How do we take the macro things that we learn in politics, right? The infrastructure bills, uh, the, the in, things going on in the environment, uh, job creation, healthcare, like all of these things are are huge, almost too big to to really fathom and get your arms around until you meet someone that's directly influenced by them. 
where in business, you are meeting these people every day, right? We talk about wages and job security. Our manufacturing facility is in our headquarters. I walk by tens of people that work for us before I ever get to my desk, right? right? And so the issues that we talk about on a macro level, inflation and supply chain and those things all hit home very acutely when you when you walk through an office and see the people that are doing doing the work, right? And really producing. I I I have I'll again, you know, breaking news on staffer, I've not assembled a single watch since I've been CEO. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and what, <laughs> and I, I would not be in my, uh, job and none of, none of the executives would be here. The company wouldn't be here if the people that knew how to do that weren't doing it and doing it well. And so we need to celebrate them and reward them. And I think sometimes the, the policy issues and politics get a little, uh, get a little abstract when, for a lot of businesses, it's it's very real, and the flip side of that is business can have can have um, can have benefits, right? We're we're looking at how to make our packaging more sustainable. Things that help the world are are really real, and we can business can have an impact on that as well. Uh, both really good points um, that you know. I hope listeners take to heart um, because having your background can really speak so credibly uh, to both sides. Um, and it's really, I mean, you just you just put them both so so really well. Um, Amanata, I could talk to you all day, but I, do, I, I know we're coming up on time and there are a couple of questions that are recurring segments that I like to ask. Sure. Um, one is called In the Vault. Um, tell me about a time you made a mistake, you know, what happened, how you recovered, what you learned from it. Ooh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a story. Uh, hopefully, I'll, I'll make it a pretty a pretty short story. Um, and it was the time. Well, I'll I'll just tell the story, Jim. How about that? Great. So Let's hear I'm, it. I'm at the White House, and there was a um, senior position that uh, became vacant that uh, we were looking to fill. And there was a a group of people, a task force of people that were put together to help uh, vet candidates and, and uh, figure out where the, uh, where the successor to the previous office holder would come from. And as part of my job in the chief of staff's office, I basically had to uh, keep in contact with those people's offices, get them in for interviews with the, the, the chief, of staff and the president, and then get them off campus, right? Hopefully with as little fanfare as possible. Yeah, because uh, you don't want the media to see them. You don't want the media to see them. So we're, you know, we're going right. to the Southwest Gate, right? We're doing all this stuff, right? And so I, um, so we had, there was five, there was five people that uh, the, the chief of staff at the time and the president were going to meet with. And so the first three go well, schedule the dates, get them in, undetected, they, they meet with the chief, they meet with POTUS, they leave. The fourth one out of five, I go to the gate and most people are early for meetings with the White House chief of staff and the president. <laughs> this, this person was not early. So I said, okay, maybe the, you know, the car is late, they're coming from out of town. And so I uh, called their assistant and their assistant says something that in hindsight, should have worried me more than it did at the time, but I was worried a marginal amount. You know, they were traveling on their own this weekend, so I know that he has a flight and hotel, but I haven't been in contact with him since Friday. This is a Monday. This is a Monday meeting. So at the meeting was at three. I remember this vividly. <laughs> meeting was at three, and I get a call from the Outer Oval. Hey, the president is ready. Yeah, um, I'm at the gate. He's not here yet. Okay, we'll 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 burn five minutes. Get him, get uh, get them in there, and we'll 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 make it work. I'm I'm calling the person cell. I'm calling their office. Their their assistants doing the same. Cell's going straight to to voicemail. Like nothing. So I wait 15 minutes, and I walk to the 
Uh, I walk to the outer oval and I hear POTUS saying, well, well, where is he? And it was the first time I had not yet met the president. So I kind of, you know, I peeked my head around the corner <laughs> enough that like you could probably see the top of my head. I couldn't see anything because I was, I was too scared to go fully in. I peeked my head around the corner and uh, the um, – uh, our friend in the outer oval at that time said, I don't know, but Awanate is going to tell you. Mr. President, Awanate, Awanate, Mr. President. <laughs> Hello, how are you? You know, I, I can't do a good impression or I, or I would. Uh, so what's what happened? And I said, well, as you know, you met with these three candidates and we have two more. Uh, X person was supposed to come at 245 to this gate. They didn't show up. And so now, I'm, I'm you know, I don't know where they are is the punchline. And he said, well, he started to ask me questions, rapid fire, as, as you probably know him to do. Well, did, did you do this? Did you do that? Um, well, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Yes. Assistant, cell phone, checked flights from origination point. Yes. All that. Don't know where he is. All right. Tap me on the shoulder. Sounds like you did all you can do. Good luck. <laughs> Walks back into the oval, closes the door. The um, the uh, the president's personal secretary at that point and the director of Oval Office operations at that time were both standing there, uh, arms folded, with the most disapproving parental look that I have seen since I left my mom's house at 18 years old. <laughs> and they said, "Just couldn't find him, huh? Interesting." Oh, and so I I, I walk out. Uh, head down, head down, tail between my legs, and I go back to my desk. And a colleague of mine, in you know the the outer space where I, I sat at the time, said, "What's wrong?" And I, I told him the story, <laughs> and they said, "Oof, you want to go for a walk?" <laughs> Which no person before or after at the White House has ever said that. <laughs> and so I thought I'm going to get fired, right? So I, um, I emailed, I emailed Rob and I said, Hey Rob, um, here's what happened. I don't think it's my fault, but I didn't deliver. So it's my fault. And, um, and Rob didn't respond. Rob was in like the sit room or something. No response, no response for like an hour. Mm. And so my message is just sitting there and I, I'm, I'm distraught. You know, I'm sure. I'm like sweating. Yeah. My my palms are sweating. I'm thinking someone's going to come at any moment and walk me out. Everyone knows because it's the president, and I didn't know what to do. And so I, you know, I started doing what any uh, White House staffer would do at the time. I started clearing out my emails <laughs> <laughs> and cleaning up my desk because this is it. This is the, they're not they're not letting me back tomorrow. In the process of of cleaning out my emails. I get an email from the person and they copied another senior staffer at the White House who they were friends with. I am so sorry. I had a parent that had a medical emergency. I was uh, off the grid. I, you know, I really blew the, like complete apology, complete, not only apology, but absolution of me. <laughs> yes. They, that saved you. And at that point, you know, I was... Uh, I was relatively junior. This was before I was very junior, actually. This is before I, I was uh, chief of staff in Ledge Affairs. And I hit forward to every senior staffer that I had even made eye contact with <laughs> <laughs> at the time, you know. And Rob comes out of the sit room. He reads the email. He walks in the office, doesn't break stride into his office. Most, you know, how, what happened. He just looks at me and says, bad day, huh? <laughs> and um, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm like sweating now even talking about it. Yeah, and, I'm sweating for you. And so uh, I, it was not a time where I'm sure there, there were lessons to be learned. I, I definitely made mistakes in that process, but it was the time I should have gotten fired. So I hate to rebrand your segment, but um, that's, that's, that's where I went with it. Oh my God, that is a great story of of professional near death. Um, so glad that um, it ended the way it did, and hopefully that person's parent turned out to be fine. Um, but the fact that you were saved from having to like carry all of the blame, 
um, I'm happy for you and all of us uh, who got to work with and, you. And in and an addendum <laughs> to the story that that uh, is I, I found humorous in hindsight. So months later, I'm, I'm in Ledger Affairs as the chief of staff, and I finally uh, we had a, something we needed to get in front of the president, and it wasn't happening. So I went down to the scheduling office. And I, I, I was talking to one of the assistant schedulers. I said, hey, I'm Awanate. And she says, oh, you're, you're the guy that messed up that meeting. And I said, yeah. You know, I told her the story, what happened. And, and she said, and I said, well, you know, I'm sure, you know, how many times has it happened? And this is in mid-2010, so a full year and a half into the administration. She was like, you're the one. Oh. <laughs> Oh. Just once. I was like, great. 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 Right. How did that become my thing? I didn't do that thing. <laughs> right. I would just I just handled the emails. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Awanate, um, thank you. You your career is really just um one for the ages. One for every staffer like observing and listening. Um, it is just so phenomenal to see all that you uh, you know are doing and have done. Um, I can't wait to be following uh, Bedrock Group and Shinola more closely now. Um, and I want to say I'm so pleased that our paths got to cross um, at the White House when they did. Um, they could have crossed at any point in our lives um, or perhaps never. And I consider myself really fortunate um, to have worked with you and, and to call you a friend. No, Jim, thank you for having me. And I, I would say uh, even more to you, which is I, I would not be here in this seat if not for you. Our conversations yeah. while we were working together and the, the, your, your kindness in accepting coffee and lunch requests uh, when you didn't need to and connecting me with people that you thought would be interested in me and vice versa has had a profound effect on my life. And so thank you very much. You are far too generous to me, um, truly. Um, And you've been generous with your time. Uh, So thank you, truly. Of course. Great to see you. Hope to see you again soon. Likewise. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.